be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thanks again for your word that teaches us and guides us. Thank you for the the living word himself, Jesus Christ, our only hope. And as we have heard these words from his mouth, may, may they sink deeply into our hearts. Teach us now more about them. Teach us more about him. Let us see his love for us, your love for us, his sacrifice for us, and how our life is found in him. Give us great hope. And uh, allow us to grow in our affections and love for you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. I'm Ryan, uh, the pastor here. Just so you know, I'm not the only guy leading this church or person who really does pastoral work. We have a group of elders. Uh, They got introduced last week. And so if you think I'm a little shaky, have no fear. We have other men as well making sure this is not uh, just the Ryan show. That would be very bad. Matthew chapter 7. Now we're looking at a very famous piece from Jesus again from the Sermon on the Mount, something you've probably heard, something, again, people who haven't even read the Bible probably have heard and maybe even used before in this golden rule. A lot of other spiritual teachers have used it as well, although they've kind of put it in the negative. Jesus puts it in the positive. In other words, they put it like, don't do to others what you don't want done to you. Jesus is far more expansive than that. He says, no, everything you would want done to you, do that to others. So his is far and away much higher than those other spiritual teachers. Well, one thing that I can't stand that you maybe have have heard by now is when people turn Christianity into morality. There's nothing wrong with morality. It's good and all. It's just a terrible way to get to God. It doesn't do that at all. And so when, when Christianity is turned into this idea that if you're good, God will approve of you, or Christians are the good people, I just can't stand that. I grew up uh, hearing that. I'm not saying that's what they were saying. That's what I heard. Uh, they may have been giving the gospel, but my heart wasn't ready for that yet. So I, I grew up hearing that. Uh, there's no surprise why there was no joy in my life. There's no surprise why it was burdensome and terrible. And so when I got the freedom of the gospel, and that was fantastic. Some of you know know what that's like when you understand the freedom that is in Christ. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. The fruit of the gospel is things like peace and patience and kindness and repentance and love and all those good things. The, The fruit of religion is, you know, burden, shame, judgmentalism, all those things. So, If I had to choose one, I'd go with the gospel, but I'll let you choose on your own. That sort of idea, though, is always kind of overlaid over Scripture, this idea of morality. And it's done here with this text, even from the very words of Jesus. And it's it's very frustrating. Um, And so I want us to, to look at how Jesus is not saying, if you're good people, I will accept you, basically. Um, it's kind of hard to disagree with our neighbors and friends and family members who maybe kind of don't want anything to do with Christianity when it's been portrayed as just a better morality with a little bit of judgment mixed in for good measure. You know, of course, we, people wouldn't be coming in the droves to be a part of that. Well, once it's taken out of that sphere of being good or bad and put into the sphere of love, which is what Jesus is doing here, Notice, he's putting it in the sphere of love, thinking about others. 
That's what he's doing here, and it, it really makes all the difference in the world. So Sinclair Ferguson, he, uh, a writer I've referenced him before, because he wrote a commentary that I read and steal things from to tell to you. Most of the time I say it's his words, but sometimes I just let you think they're my own. For Jesus, the word of God is, the word of God is not complex rules and regulations placed on men's shoulders as, heavy, as a heavy burden. Rather, to Jesus... It is an outworking of the principle of love. Grasp this, and everything falls into place. That's the point. So, what I love takes away all of this. You should do this. You ought to do this. Um, What will other people think of me if I do this? He, He removes that and replaces it with something much greater, which is, if you were in those people's shoes, what would you want? And so that that gets rid of all of that other mess. How will I be perceived? Here's the sermon summary. You've been waiting patiently. Thank you. Sermon summary is Christianity's foundation is not morality, but rather others-centered love. Christianity's foundation is not morality, but rather others-centered love. Let's see if I can back that up. And this is really what Jesus is saying. He's going to talk about both an expansiveness and a narrowness. So those are the two things I want to kind of look at today, an expansiveness and a narrowness. Let's start with the expansiveness first. Verse 12, the one thing that would solve all the, world, all the world's problems. I mean all the world's problems. Well, maybe not climate change or whatever, those sorts of things. But any relational issue in the world would be solved with this small statement. Isn't that amazing? Think about it. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Anytime you come upon a decision involving someone else, a decision of how to treat another person, if we thought, hey, if I was in their shoes, what would I desire? Wouldn't that really change the way our relationships go? So anytime I feel frustrated with another person, anytime I see someone else's failings or sin, anytime uh, I'm just interacting with people in a normal, everyday way, if I was in their shoes, what would I desire? That's a great question for us to ask. It's the question that makes a great parent, a great boss, a great employee, a great judge, a great government, great teacher, school system, coach, counselor, friend. It is the question that makes marriages last for decades, for a lifetime. It's the question that makes a great church, too. A loving community, which is considering what's best for others and living into that. So anywhere where relationships exist, this is the key. It's a very simple question, but it's one that doesn't come to our heads very often. Uh, At our last uh, church in, in Columbus, Ohio, we have community group leaders come with a problem, say, how should I deal with this problem? You know, this person is presenting an issue with the group, how should I address this? And usually it was like, hey, what's right, what's wrong, you know, what's the steps I should take to do this? And we would put it in a little different light and say, well, what would it look like to love that person? You know, if, if you were that person, what would you desire? Let's start there. And it's amazing how that's not a question that ever really comes to our mind when we're trying to deal with these things. Now, I want the process of which to solve this problem. Now, I, I, want, I want you to think, what does it look like to love this person? What does it look like to put yourself in their shoes and see what would you desire? That really changes our outlook on how to 
deal with one another in relationships. It's also a question that would have never, ever, ever come across the minds of the people Jesus is talking to, well, at least the religious people Jesus is talking to, right? Because what were other people to them? They were never thinking, wow, if I was in their shoes, what would I want? They were just thinking, I want to use you either so that I can condemn you and feel better about myself or so that I can present myself as super spiritual and you will be amazed and that will make me feel better. But never was it something of, hey, what is best for this person and how can I do that? That question never, ever came to them. But Christianity's foundation is others-centered love. And what you need to know, and one thing, I want you, two things I want you to understand. The relational uh, kind of modality, if you will, sorry, stop using those words. The relational nature of sin and the relational nature of the law. This is what Jesus says when he summarizes the law by this statement in verse 12. In other words, when I say the relational nature of sin, I'm saying sin is not just about right and wrong. It's about a loving of self. It's about a selfishness, a self-focus. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.15 when he said this, that Jesus died for all. Why did he die for all? That those who live may now be perfect people. No, that's not what he says. That those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see Paul attaching the work of Christ to being freed from the love of self. Same thing Jesus is talking about here. What you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Removing a self-focus, removing a love for self, and instead a focus on others. Now, where do you see that? How, how could we ever see if we're selfish or not? Well, God gave us relationships to do that. If you're just on an island by yourself, you don't necessarily see how self-focused your heart is. And then God in His kindness gives us a church of people who all have to kind of love each other, even though some days it's like, eh, I don't know, you know? And some of us enter into marriage, and some of us have children, and others, all of us have friends and neighbors and family, and we're just stuck in this. Relati- these relationships where this comes out, our selfishness. And so when I look at verse 12, I love that, I want that, there's just a small problem, there's a little blockage, and it's called me, and it's called you, and that's what keeps us from living into that, because like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.15, we are selfish. So it's not always intentional. I don't always intend to think of myself. I just do think of myself. Uh, I often, it's very rational, right? I've got a lot of great reasons why I should be thought of first. It's, It's rational, and it's just continual. It's nonstop. And so with that sort of problem, we talked about it being a drastic problem before. With that kind of drastic problem, it's going to need a drastic solution. The, the solution to that selfish, self-focused heart is going to have to be more than just, hey, why don't you uh, just do these things and start thinking of other people and take these four steps. My heart is not going to just be changed that simply. It's, it's like a it's like a wild, raging bull, you know, and these, these commands sometimes are just like a little net that you try to catch this bull with. It's ridiculous. Those aren't going to change my heart at all. Or maybe, you know, 
for some of us. It's like a, like a two-year-old rolling around on the floor in the grocery store after you've told them they can't have something. You know, it's like that's an unsolvable problem right there. Just walk away. That's the only solution. So this, you need a, we need a drastic, drastic solution to this drastic problem. Jesus has been telling us throughout the Sermon on the Mount, I think, what he's been talking about is death and resurrection. And here, I think he's saying, we must be killed and remade. We can't just be different people. There's got to be death and resurrection. That's why he would say in John 3, 7, you must be born again. You need to be made from a different life source. And so that's why it's so important if we can do a little kind of doctrine timeout for a minute or theology timeout. That's why it's so important that Jesus did not come from a human father. As the Apostles' Creed says, which we read often, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. If Jesus comes from a human father that's in the line of Adam, then He's just another human being with sinful nature. And we have no hope of a, of a new life, of a new nature. But if he comes from a different stock, then we have some good news. We have hope of a life like that life that's not from the stock of sinful humanity. It's, it's from a different branch, a different tree altogether. He is the new Adam. And so it's very important if the question is, does it really matter if Jesus is born of a virgin or not? Yes, it's extremely important. Because within there lies our hope of a new life, of a, of a life that isn't racked by selfishness and self-absorption. We don't need just some commands. We need a new life in Christ. We need that life. Romans 6, 3-6. through 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him, so our old life has died in order that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, then we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And, and here's the hope. We know that our old self, that, that self-centered, that self-focused self, was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. There's our hope. Do you see how it's a a new life? Do you see how it's death to the old life, resurrection in the new life in Christ? That is our hope, not just a few words of how to be a different person, but death to the old self, life in Christ himself. That life, that very life. So when we go through the Old Testament, we're sort of asking the question, or you ought to be asking the question, Hey, who is God? What is He like? That's the question as we're reading through the narrative of the Old Testament. And we're reading these stories and we're thinking, okay, what does this say about who God is? How He's treating His people? What does that mean? And then we come to the New Testament and we see the cross, the resurrection, His Son dying on the cross for our sins. And we we definitely know the character of God now. And Jesus is stating it here. Do you know who God is? Let me be very clear. You may not have have noticed it in the Old Testament so much. Let me be very clear about who God is. He is the sacrificial, others-centered lover. That's who God is. He loves other people. 
He is the one who uh, is the embodiment of whatever you wish others would do, do also to them. What fulfills that more? What is a better picture of that than Jesus Christ coming and saving sinners like us? That is the paramount picture of that verse. So if you think, well, does Jesus think about what others would want and do that to them? Of course, he thought of it before we even thought of it. That's what Paul says in Romans, Romans 5.10, for if, we were, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were enemies. So it's not like we petitioned God, hey, we've got an idea, you save us, you die for us, we live. How's it sound? We're in kind of a bind. That's not what happened. We were running from God fine on our own. Yet, he knows. You know what? If I was in their situation, I would want I would want rescue. I would want someone to grab me by the scruff of my neck, do what's best for me, and pull me back and say, I love you, you're mine, and rescue me. That's what I would want. And that's what he does. It's exactly what he does. Jesus, the embodiment of the golden rule, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also for them. That sort of love is not, I don't think, a human love. Not with that consistency, at least. It's a a divine love. And so our hope to have this sort of love is a hope of that life of Christ that is in us. He promises that if our old life is gone and our new life is in Christ, then that love is not a love that's ours, it's a love that's His, but He's in us and coming through us. And so now we have a, a other-centered sacrificial love that we see throughout us in our family, in this body. And we see it and we say, God, this is amazing that you're doing this. Christ, you must be here. Because I know what Paul said about us in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He said that we were selfish human beings. And now we're seeing people sacrifice for one another and love one another and prefer one another. It's amazing. What is that attributed to? Besides a fantastic preacher, it's also attributed to the life of Christ. Just kidding, don't strike me down, God. It's only attributed to the life of Christ here. That's it. Because our life is wrapped up in self. And and it's died and passed away, and the new life of Christ is here. The good news of the gospel is not, hey, if you live a life of other-centered love, God will accept you. So get to work. The good news of the gospel is Jesus, who is the sacrificial, other-centered love lover, lives in you, and his love comes through you. That's the good news of the gospel. So that's an expansiveness. Now I want to look at verse 13 and 14, which talks about a narrowness. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter... By it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Again, these verses are so often just taken out of context and put into like this moral context, right? So basically saying like God has a really tight morality, you better fit yourself into that or you're in trouble. That doesn't fit with the context of what he's saying here, does it? I mean, he was just talking about sacrificial love. So my guess is the next thing he's saying is probably going to reference that sacrificial love. 
the narrowness of the gate and the difficulty of the road is, Jesus, is about Jesus' call to death and resurrection, to death to self and life in him. Who wants to choose death? You know, if we put a sign out here that says we're welcoming our communities to death, who's coming? Not, not many. I wouldn't have. You wouldn't have until Jesus got a hold of us, right? Not many want to sign up for death. Why? Because if you go back to chapter 5, he states it when he says things like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the dead in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, who realize they're dead and have no hope. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They have, they have a dead righteousness. They have no righteousness. See, he's saying the same thing as the beginning of his sermon. He's saying only those who, who say, look, I'm a beggar, I'm, I'm dead, however you want to put it, I'm nothing. Only those will go down this narrow road to life. And the rest will follow this broad road that looks like life, that ends in destruction. That's our natural inclination, is to choose that very broad road. Death to self is not a pleasant thing. I don't like it. I know you probably don't like it either. It's not a fun thing to, to engage in. Because the, our... our our human nature, that sinful nature, it doesn't just go down easy, you know? You don't just say, hey, go away, and it goes, all right. No, it's, it's that raging bull that's going to fight to the death. It's going to keep fighting and keep fighting and keep fighting. It's never going down until Christ finally comes back, and it's down, down, you know? It realizes it's death. But it's not an easy way to live. Remember Romans 6, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. Think about the death of Christ. Was that a pleasant experience? No. Our death is not going to be a pleasant experience either. Death and resurrection for Christ, we share in that. We're a a part of that. We find our life in that. Life is found then in living and loving others, but not many of us want to choose that. Not many willing to admit they're poor in spirit, they're beggars. We're desperate for him. You know, as I've been thinking about this this week, I've been thinking about the, the idea that life is found in loving others. And I resent that often, <laughs> most days this week. Um, but I'm trusting that it's true. And I, I'm, I'm learning and I, think, I hope all of us are learning to live in a way that, that he'll allow us to, to learn and he'll be patient with us and we'll be patient with each other as we learn to, to live this life that is about loving others before loving ourselves. Thinking, hey, what would that person prefer? I'm going to do that. And saying, God, help us put that on our minds. It, it, it's not always I'm trying not to think of you. I just don't naturally, you know? Poor Kate, she gets this all the time. And it's like, you didn't think to get us some food when you got food? Honestly, I didn't. I just thought, I'm hungry and I got food. I don't know, you know? It's like, how do you do that? I don't know. God help me, you know? Same with you. You might think, why did God, Ryan not think of me? i sorry, you know? Let's, let's help each other and pray for each other and, and trust that God is doing that work and that life of Christ is, is coming through and will be coming through more and more, we pray. So how do we 
grow in this type of love, I think the only way is to have your heart captured by that sort of love. In other words, to, to continue to see how God loved you with this type of love and to be enthralled by it and, and, and to the, let that be your heartbeat. And when that becomes the focus and, and, and when that gets a hold of you, then I pray that we will grow in, in that sort of same love overflowing into others. So how can we love each other better and think of each other more? Rehearse the gospel. Think about how Jesus is that. Think about how he's done that for us. Think about how great that is, how life-giving that is. And then maybe our hearts will be able to give that to one another as well. My hope is that our church will be a place where others-centered love just abounds. And may the life of Christ within us produce that sort of thing. Grant us grace today, Lord, we pray, to treat others with this amazing, others-centered love. Lord, help us to see your beautiful gospel and treasure it. May we see Jesus as the embodiment of loving and preferring others. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time today. We thank you for your love for us. Grant us a deeper love for one another, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.